Second Samuel chapter six, as we return uh, here to our ongoing study in the book of Second Samuel, I believe that what God has given us in these verses here is a window on worship. That's the title of the message: a window on worship. As we study this passage tonight, we'll watch, watch and observe David more than we'll listen to him. And we'll see that, that at least in three ways, David epitomizes genuine worship before the Lord. Key phrase there, before the Lord. Now, real quickly, let me remind you about where we left off in our study a couple weeks back. David has finally been established as the king over all of Israel, southern and northern tribes. He's He's captured the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. And now he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to his new capital. But the transport of the Ark, as we studied in our last sermon, was handled poorly. It was handled irreverently, too lightly. The priests, the king, the people all minimized God's holiness. And a man by the name of Uzzah died because of it. So instead of bringing the Ark to Jerusalem... King David, out of fear and frustration, had the ark left at the house of a man named Obed-Edom. Fast forward three months, and someone comes to David now with the word of how richly blessed Obed-Edom was because of the presence of the ark that he had. When David heard how blessed this man was, it opened David's eyes to the fact that the ark of God was meant to bless God's people, not hurt God's people. It was something that he should respect, but that that he should not be afraid of. It just needs to be handled correctly. So David said, I'm going to give this thing another try. And he did. And he got it right this time. He remembered the clear boundaries that God placed in Exodus and Numbers in regards to, to how we should transport the ark and carry the ark. He didn't try to do it his own way. He didn't try to put it on a cart. He did what was right. And you know what it resulted in in the latter part of 2 Samuel 6, which is where we're studying tonight? It resulted in genuine worship before the Lord. Can I say this? That when you are doing right, when you are walking with the Lord, when you are living your life according to the precepts of the Word of God, it always results in worship of the Lord. The book of Proverbs says the righteous, those that live right, The righteous doth sing and rejoice. If ever a Christian tells me when they come to church, well, I just am not into the singing. Or I don't feel like singing. I look at them and I would say or ask this, are you living right? Because according to scripture, generally speaking in Proverbs, the person who's living righteously, well, there's just a song that comes out. There's joy, there's happiness, there's expressions of praise and expressions of worship. You, you contrast that with the first part of 2 Samuel 6 where David wasn't doing right. He didn't have a song. There was silence. There was despair. There was fear. There was discouragement. He resigned. He said, get the ark out of here. We're not going any farther with that thing. He quit. But when David got it right, when David lived according to the word of God, he was able then to naturally have a song of praise and a song of worship. 
And from his expression of worship, I think we learn three things. Look at verse 12 to start. Verse 12, 2 Samuel 6. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. I want you to notice the manner in which this worship takes place. Some key words. Verse 12, the word gladness. Verse 13, the word sacrificed. Verse 14, the word danced. Verse 15, the word shouted. This sounds like a celebration to me. But what are they celebrating exactly? Are they celebrating the relocation of a, of a popular tourist item? Are they, selling, are they celebrating the opportunity for Jerusalem to now be a real destination location? No, they're celebrating. David is celebrating what the Ark of the Covenant represents. Are you hearing me? They're celebrating the presence of God among his people. Because as Obed-Edom's household makes clear, there are some amazing blessings that come when God dwells among his people. David's gladness, his sacrifice, his dancing, his shouting, the playing of instruments is all an act of celebratory worship before the Lord for the blessing of his presence. This is where we get our first insight about worship tonight. Worship is celebrating God's presence. Can I ask you, do you celebrate God's presence like David did? I'm not talking about the cultural expressions of ram's horns and dancing and animal sacrifice. But is your worship an expression of, of spiritual exertion in joyful celebration of God's presence in your life? Is there any spiritual exertion, any joy, any celebration in your worship? Remember, the ark was only a symbol in the Old Testament only a symbol that pointed toward a greater reality that we get to experience under the new covenant. John 1 verse 14, and the word was made flesh, let's talk about Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Don't let this go over your head. Jesus came in a body, not a box, and he dwelt among his people. But that's not all. When Jesus went back to heaven, he left us the third person of the Godhead to live in us. John 14, and I will pray the father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him. Do you know him tonight? For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you, what a, what a reality that we get to live in as a, as a child of God. We don't carry around a box. We don't look to a piece of furniture as a symbol. No, no, we get to carry God's presence through the Holy Spirit every moment of every day in us. That is worth singing about. 
That is worth testifying about. That's worth celebrating. So let me ask you, when you worship the Lord, are you mindful of the blessing of his presence in your life? Is there a spiritual exertion of joyful celebration that the Holy Spirit resides in you? W.A. Blakely said this, there are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? See, I think we get this idea for how, for, from how God dwelt with Uzzah in the first part of this chapter. For taking his presence too lightly. And, and, and we think that that shows us that we have to have this, this extra measure of reverence in worship that somehow has to stifle the, the expression of joy and enthusiasm in our worship. But, but I believe this passage shows us that in God's presence, you should have both. You should both shudder and shout. Like the psalmist said in, in Psalm 2 verse 11, you should rejoice with trembling. A fearful and and reverent sense of God's presence. Hear me, church. It doesn't suppress joy. It stimulates joy. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So when we gather to worship on a Lord's day like today, I believe there should be this balanced response to God's presence in our lives and in our church, one of reverence and respect and adoration and trembling because God is in our midst. That's a holy thing. But there also should be joy and happiness and shouting and celebration. Why? Because God's in our midst. That means that our church services, hear me please, should never feel like a funeral home. Or a hospital room. There should be an energy and an expression about our worship that is celebratory in nature. Now our worship ought not to be like a circus either. While being joyful and exuberant in our worship, we listen, we should still be careful to not descend. I said descend into sensualism or carnality or worldliness or vainglory in our expression. A few weeks ago, there was a, a visitor in our church on a Sunday morning. She's from out of town, came from a, another Baptist church, which she was very committed. One of the comments that she gave about our church was that she felt so comfortable in worship. She, she felt a unique but, but real sense of God's presence in this place. That's what we want, isn't it? We don't just want somebody to walk out of Fellowship Baptist Church on a Sunday morning saying, wow, they can really sing. We want someone walking out of this church saying, wow, God's in that place. Pastor Steve Gaines said that that we shouldn't build a worship service to attract people. We should build a worship service to attract the presence of God. Because he says generally people want to be in a place where they can feel the presence of God. Man, I agree with that. I hope that our our worship here continues to be reverent and joyful. I hope that people will will get a sense that we're not just going through the motions, but that we're genuinely thankful and serious about celebrating God's presence in our lives every Lord's Day when we come together. Now, can I give you a little practical help on that? That doesn't start on Sunday morning once you get here. 
That doesn't start on Wednesday night after you walk in. That starts on Saturday night. That starts on Wednesday morning. I say it every week on my pastor's preview videos. Sunday worship is a what? Saturday decision. I know there's about 42 of you that watch that video every week. Thank you for responding. It's so true. You, you, you can't expect, I'm just going to be practical. You can't expect to stay up late on Saturday night and, and, and work like crazy all day, watch TV, go to movies, whatever you do on Saturday, roll back into the house 11, 12 o'clock, throw the kids in bed and expect everybody to jump out of bed ready to worship on Sunday morning. Can't do that. We're humans. For something great to happen, we've got to prepare for it. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to have a disciplined Saturday night routine. I know that's practical. But that's very, very important to your family's Lord's Day. If you want it to be truly restful, a picture of the Sabbath... If you want it to be a, be a day that you give your time and your energy and your attention and your focus to God, hear me please, you got to be somewhat awake when you show up. You got to be rested for it. You got to be, your mind's got to be right. On the drive to church, just, just be prepared. The devil's in the minivan. Like he's in there. He's in your kids. And I know that we're, we can have disciplined dispositions and we can, we can have that, that parking lot transformation. We roll in, we get out of the minivan and everything's great. But the 10 minutes before that, it wasn't so great. Hey, we ought to make a rule. No arguing, no fighting, no resolving issues before church. We'll deal with that later. This is the Lord's day. We're going to stay in unity. We're going to stay focused. We're going to come with our hearts ready, not distracted. All God's people said. Worship is a celebration of God's presence. Look at what else we learn from this passage. Verse 17. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh, a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Point number two, worship is giving God's provision. It's not just celebrating God's presence, it's giving God's provision. Just a few moments, we're going to have a financial report. So that's why I feel really good about this point. I think it's timely. When the ark is, is finally placed by David in this temporary tent, the worship here after David shouted and played the trumpet and, and expressed his thanks to God in that way, the worship now is clearly defined by giving, by gifts. And did you see that there's two types of giving here? There's sacrifices to the Lord and then David takes food and he offers it to people. He gives to God. And he gives to others and both are worship. 
Now think about this for a moment. If the Ark of the Covenant represents God's special presence among his people, and if God's presence brings special blessing to his people, then isn't it instructive that David is showing how genuine worship always involves giving back to God and giving to one another uh, some portion of what he's given to you. Now, obviously, under the new covenant, we don't offer animal sacrifices to God. But the New Testament speaks of a number of sacrifices or offerings we can give to the Lord in worship. Hebrews 13, verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Not just on good days. What is that? The fruit of our lips. Finish it for me. Giving thanks to his name. You ever thought about the fact that your praise, your gratitude, your positivity, your thanksgiving is an act of worship to God, just like when you sing? Here's the implication. Be a positive person. I'm going to say it for those in the back. Be a positive person. Even on Facebook. Be a joyful person. Be a happy person. Well, I am happy. Tell your face that. Be a praise-filled person. Not just because that's good manners, but because it's a way of worshiping your God. Having a good attitude is worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. You want to worship God by giving? Give your body to him. How so? Holy. I said holy. Set apart. Acceptable unto God. Which is your reasonable service. Did you know that by living a holy life, separated from the world, surrendered to God, transformed by God, is actually a way to worship God every day? That means that at any time you choose God's way over the world's way, Anytime you choose holiness over worldliness, anytime you offer your body, your mind, your life to God, did you know that he sees that as an offering of worship? Hear me, I want to preach for a second. The the world says that your body's yours. The world says you can do with your body whatever you want to do with your body. You can wear whatever you want. It doesn't matter if it's a modest. It doesn't matter if it's appropriate. It doesn't, none of that matters. Wear whatever you feel comfortable in. Wear whatever's unique to you. You're your own person, so just do you. You you can do what you want with your body sexually so long as it makes you happy. You can say what you want about your body. You can say you're a man. You can say you're a woman. You can say you're both. You can say you're neither. But did you know that one way a Christian can worship the Lord is to daily surrender their bodies back to God because they know their bodies are not their own. They've been bought with a price. That means that before you put on something as simple as an article of clothing, you're going to ask, is this pleasing to God? Is this an offering holy and acceptable in his eyes? It means that before you drink that, before you smoke that, before you swallow that, before you chew on that, you're going to ask, is this pleasing to the Lord? Is this what he has in mind as a holy and acceptable stewardship of my body? Would this be considered acceptable worship to him? 
See, the person who wants to worship God with their body prays daily and says, God, with your help today, I'm not going to just give in to my sexual temptations. I'm not going to just do something for pleasure because I want to. I'm not going to wear what I want to wear, eat what I want to eat, drink what I want to drink, smoke what I want to smoke. I'm going to deny sinful lust in my life. I'm going to fight against my flesh. And I'm going to do it because this body is yours. This mind is yours. This heart is yours. This life is yours. And I want to offer a sacrifice acceptable and holy to you. Pastor, that's so hard. How can God really expect that? Well, the end of the verse tells us that offering our bodies to him daily is our reasonable service. That means that what God is asking is within reason. It's not unfair. And it's reasonable precisely because of the mercies that he's shown us. Jesus gave his body for us on the cross and the grave. So God is fully justified in asking us to give our bodies back to him. Another New Testament sacrifice is spoken of in Philippians 4. Paul's saying, thank you for your gift to the Philippians, but I have all in abound. I'm full. Having received of Epaphroditus, that faithful man of God in the church of Philippi. Those things that were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. You know what this is talking about? Brother David preached on it not too long ago. The sacrifice of giving. Every time you give a financial offering to the Lord, you are worshiping him. You're not just paying me. You're not just taking care of the church. You're worshiping a holy God. That's why the Apostle Paul says in the book of Corinthians, don't give grudgingly. Give cheerfully. It's worship. Don't give sparingly. Give bountifully. It's worship. See, preaching and teaching on giving should never bring tension to the Christian's heart. It should never be awkward. It should never be resisted by the hearer. You you shouldn't hesitate to preach it as a pastor. Giving and, and preaching on giving should be welcomed. It should be celebrated. It should be expected in a local church. Why? Because we exist to worship. And one way that we worship is through financial offerings. So talk about it. Talk about it. I wonder if your giving so far this year would be considered a sweet smell. A sacrifice acceptable. Well pleasing to God. I wonder if the, if the attitude behind your giving would qualify as that. I wonder if the amount of your giving would qualify for that. I wonder if the consistency of your giving would qualify for that. I wonder if it would be said of you what was said of the Macedonian Christians in the book of Corinthians who, whose giving was abundant and liberal and generous even in a great trial of affliction. Meaning their financial margin decreased, but their giving didn't. They didn't stop giving to the work of the Lord just because times got tough. In fact, when times got tough, they abounded in liberality, Paul says. Why? Because they viewed giving as a way to worship God. In fact, Paul even says that that it was the grace of God in their life that said, I don't care what my bank account looks like. 
God's grace never stops coming into my life. And my offering is a response to his grace, not a response to the economy. An interesting observation here about David's worship is that when David got the ark of God's presence back to Jerusalem, watch here, please, this is an important point. He didn't just worship through singing, dancing, and shouting. His worship didn't stop there. It didn't stop at the song service. He worshiped through sacrifice, through giving. Now, I already told you, I hope you're enthusiastic and joyful in your worship. I hope you sing. I hope you shout. I hope you praise the Lord in song. But if that's where your worship stops, your worship's shallow and incomplete. If you're singing little, I mean singing loud, but giving little, you're stopping short in your worship. If you're more cheerful during the singing than you are when the offering plate's passed. There's a heart problem. I say that because Jesus didn't say where your song is, there will your heart be also. He said where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's not how enthusiastic and involved you are in the singing or in the service that reveals your heart as much as how generous and sacrificial you are with your money that reveals your heart. But David gave to others too. Just didn't give to God. Of course, we're probably not going to Get a cake and start handing it out at church. But in the New Testament, you know, we have 21 epistles that teach us how to give to each other in the church. They're called one another's. Yeah, we're taught to love each other, forgive each other, pray for each other, serve each other, encourage each other, be patient with each other, forbear with each other. Offer accountability to each other. Give acceptance to each other. Give mercy to each other. Give grace to each other. Whenever you do that to your brother or sister in Christ, you're not just being a good Christian. You're worshiping the Lord. As much as as when you drop a, a check into the offering plate. By forgiving the brother or sister that offended you across the auditorium tonight. That is evermore just as much worship as writing the church a $10,000 check. By encouraging a sister in Christ that's down. By holding another brother in the church accountable. That is worship. Can I say this? This is why attending church is so, so vitally important. Because if you don't attend church faithfully, if you aren't plugged into serving in ministry in a church and rubbing shoulders with people in our church, then you are robbing yourself of an avenue through which to worship God by giving to others. That's why that last growth step is so important. Serve. Serve. Do something for somebody outside of yourself. Get plugged in enough to know people well enough to know when they're discouraged. To know when they're, you can just tell something's wrong at church. But if you're always on the fringe, you're in and out. You hold people at a distance, you're not approachable. You are sacrificing the opportunity to know your brother or sister well enough to have enough credibility in their life to be able to give to them. What is worship? It's celebrating God's presence. It's giving God's provision. Let's talk about one more. Verse 16. I skipped this verse because it ties into the end of the story. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Look at her attitude. She despised him in her heart. Okay, this, this plays out in verse 20. Look at it. 
Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, sarcastically, how glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. And David said unto Michael, it was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father, before all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, this is before the Lord, I will play before the Lord, and I will yet be more vile than thus, and be base in my own sight. And of the maidservants thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. Now, before I give you the last point, I need to say something here. We shouldn't take this Old Testament text as a literal prescriptive way for how to express ourselves in worship and how not to do it. Meaning, we take principles from David and we apply them in the realm of our own heart and our own lives and our own culture. But, but we don't do everything just like he did it. I say that because some have looked at David's manner of expressing himself and they say something like this. See there? I can dance in church. Just like David did. And on top of that, I don't even have to care what people like Michael think of my expression of worship. So there. Well, first, I'm serious about this. Understand that what David did was a common form of expression in his culture. It was appropriate in nature. Michael was the only one that looked at it as awkward. Okay, that's a far cry from the dancing of today. But even at that, I found that the ones who use this text to justify worshiping however they want to worship, no matter how it distracts, have never really been willing to strip down to nothing but a linen ephod. They want to cherry pick this text. They can dance in church, but they won't do anything else David did in the text. They won't take their clothes off to put on a priestly garment. They won't uh, offer a burnt offering or a peace offering to God. They won't give everyone a church a cake. Piece of flesh, flag and a wine. Some of you probably need a flag and a wine. But bless God, don't tell them they can't dance in church. Hey, if you're going to take one thing literal in a, in a narrative, you need to be consistent in your hermeneutics. And as your pastor, let me say this. Paul actually had to rebuke the church in Corinth for doing something in worship that became more distracting than edifying. They were speaking in tongues, but no one could understand them. Paul even said himself, he said this, I'd rather speak five words that you can understand than 10,000 words you can't understand. And he said, stop. Stop doing that. There's precedent for that in scripture. And I believe that principle can be broadened to, 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 to apply to our own expressions of corporate worship today. If it doesn't edify the brothers and sisters around you, and that varies from church to church, you should probably stop it altogether. If what you're doing distracts from teaching and admonishing and edifying, it's probably best to stop. And if you continue to do it, please, at least don't use this text as a proof text for why you can. Now, with that being said, notice the last thing about worship. It's seeking God's pleasure, not your own. 
In verse 16, we see that Michael's heart, right, is filled with bitterness about how God's, or David's expressing himself in worship. Then in verse 20, that bitterness spills out on him. Now, now question, what's Michael's complaint? What do we read? Well, she despises David because she's believe, she believes he's acted not like a king, but like some vulgar fool. He's jumping around, he's shouting, he's wearing what in her opinion is completely inappropriate, especially for a king. But wait a minute, why is Michael getting all worked up about this? Why is everybody celebrating except her? Well, the narrator gives us a clue in verse 16. Look at how he refers to the characters. He calls David, um, King David. Then he calls Michael, Michael, the daughter of Saul. He could have simply said David, her husband. He could have said Michael, his wife. But, but he labels her Michael, the daughter of Saul. That is the, that is the key to understanding her heart. Remember, Michael's father, Saul, always sought the pleasure of people. He wanted to look the part of a king. He, he valued public approval so highly that he was willing to reject God's command in 1 Samuel chapter 15 for sake of keeping his reputation intact. He was supposed to kill King Agag, remember that? All the livestock. But the people came to him and said, spare Agag. And because he cared so much about his reputation with the people and his credibility with the people and his standing with the people, he disobeyed God. David's the opposite. David's called the king. As David explains to his wife, his worship was not for the sake of any person in the processional. Verse 21 says that David danced, he celebrated, he worshiped before the Lord. May I ask you tonight, whose worship does your worship most reflect? David's or Michael's. When you give, when you sing, when you serve, when you pray, are you driven and motivated by pleasing God or pleasing men? Is what you're doing in worship before the Lord or for yourself? Revelation chapter four says, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure, they are and were created. Every ministry you serve in, you do it for God's pleasure. Every offering you give, you do it for God's pleasure. Every prayer you pray, you do it for God's pleasure. Every song you sing, you do it for God's pleasure. Every hand you shake to encourage, you do it for God's pleasure. Every student you teach in our academy, you do it for God's pleasure. It's all about him. You you, you want to get his blessings to exit in your life real quick? Violate that verse right there. Make your life about you. And you'll not just be unhappy. You'll forfeit some of the richest blessings of God in your life. But the opposite is true as well. When you fulfill your God-given purpose... Created to bring him pleasure. And your time, your priorities, your schedule, your money, everything is filtered through the pleasure of God. There is not a better place to be than that. So what have we seen tonight? We've seen the flame of worship is sparked by a recognition 
and appreciation of God's presence among us. And when we grasp who it is among us, we celebrate with spiritual exertion. But that that spiritual exertion doesn't stop us singing, does it? It leads to giving. Someone's enjoying a tune over there. Just as we've received. What's going on? All right. I'm going to start that all over. We've seen that, that the flame of worship is sparked by a recognition and appreciation of God's presence among us. And when we grasp who it is among us, we celebrate with spiritual exertion. We don't come to church and fold our arms. We don't put our hands in our pockets. We live open-handed. That exertion leads to giving just as we receive. We, we, we give back to God praise and service and money and our body. And we also give to one another encouragement and blessings and love. And we do it all for God's pleasure. We live our life before an audience of one. How's your worship tonight? That's the question of the text. How's your worship? Celebratory like David's or is it cold? Let's be honest with ourselves. You going through the motions right now? Is your worship generous like David's? Do you find that it's much easier for you to sing than give your tithe? Is your worship before the Lord? Is what you do as a Christian motivated by the glory of God and bringing honor to his name? Or have you made it more about you right now? God, help us to find an altar of worship tonight and recommit ourselves to his pleasure, his honor, and his glory. And all God's people said, stand to your feet.